Okay, good morning everyone. It's time for us to begin. I think we're all ready. I do this, um, I've done this before so you won't be surprised. Uh, I, I keep adding lessons to this study. Um, I broke this lesson into two. This, uh, this lesson on church discipline. So we are taking two weeks to go through uh, this particular chapter in Dever's book on church discipline, chapter 5. I think I'm going to add one more so that there's three parts on church discipline. Remember I, I said that this book, I read it not last Monday, the Monday before. I thought it was an excellent book on church discipline. It really builds upon Dever's chapter here that we're considering. Um, this is written by Jonathan Lehman. It's called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. It's put out by Nine Marks, so the same organization. Um, he takes what Dever introduces here in chapter 5 and really builds upon it and elaborates on important themes. And so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, should we go through this at some point as a church? And maybe we will. I think... The better thing for us to do right now so that we don't get um, ecclesiology fatigue uh, is to uh, just add one more lesson uh, to this study on the topic of church discipline where what I'll do is I'll try to bring out some of the, the features of this book that are, are, are unique and that, that are supplemental to what we're studying in the Nine Marks book. Does that make sense? So I think we'll have one more a week on church discipline uh, I'll, I'll highlight some key features of this book, and then we'll continue on in our study of, of the, well, 12 marks of a healthy church. And so I have the schedule in front of me updated. I'll ask Mike to update it on the website if you, if you follow along with that at all. Hopefully that'll be updated soon. Um, yes, so we will go all the way through to June 25th now um, uh, in this study. One thing I did want to remind you of, it's, it's a couple of weeks out, but we will not have class on May the 21st. So we have class today, class next week, and then no class on May the 21st. If you want to write that in your calendars, if you, if you keep a calendar like that. I'll be up in course gold on that Sunday, and so we'll just go ahead and cancel. And then the next Sunday we'll get on with our, with our study. Okay, um, Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will move through our lesson for today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together, but also to set our minds on you and on Christ and on your holy word uh, in a way that's pronounced. Uh, we meditate on your word day by day. Uh, you call us to do this. We give glory to you day by day as your people, but we thank you for the Lord's Day where we are able to set aside um, the cares of this world to a degree and to fix our minds and hearts on you. Feed us, O Lord. Strengthen us so that we might serve you. In Christ's name, amen. I wanted to just review very briefly uh, what we considered in part one of this uh, study, this lesson on church discipline. Uh, there was an introduction in Dever's book where he set the stage for this subject, and he acknowledged that in our culture, and even in our church culture, discipline isn't, it, it, it isn't practiced often anymore, and there are some cultural factors that uh, contribute to that. Uh, Hyper-individualism, we, we can say, uh, also uh, uh, um, a resistance to, to authority, uh, even within the church. 
he asks the question, is all discipline negative? And there he clarifies that a discipline should be a regular thing that happens within the church. It's been called, and we call it in our constitution, formative church discipline, where we are constantly encouraging one another in the Lord. We're seeking to build one another up, to spur one another along in the Christian faith. That's a kind of discipline, actually. Iron sharpens iron continuously within the church. That's a good thing. What is church discipline? There it is defined, and he talks about what formal church discipline is. What does the Bible say about church discipline? There Dever surveyed a number of key texts. The text that most people think of, and indeed it is a key text, is Matthew chapter 18. Uh, But there are other passages that speak about church discipline too that we need to pay careful attention to. And so I did try to really draw your your attention to that. Uh, Matthew 18 is not the only text that speaks about church discipline. Now we move on with the second half of this chapter, chapter 5 in Dever's book. And we come to the section, How Have Christians in the Past Handled Discipline? By the way, this is one of the reasons it's important to learn about the past, to study church history, also to to read about um, important figures in the history of the church. This is why it's important to read old books, uh, because uh, we can... You know, we can kind of be blinded to things if we only read modern books and only focus on the issues that are pressing us today. Um, Kind of like it's important to get outside your own community and culture and to read and and to be exposed to things from around the world today, uh, culturally speaking. So, too, it's important to do that with history so that we don't become too narrowly focused on the issues that are pressing us in the moment. How have Christians in the past handled discipline is the question. In times past, Christians regularly engaged in church discipline. In fact, disciplinary actions were a substantial part of the business at members' meetings. So it might feel strange to you to even be talking about this subject. I don't know that it is for any of you, but uh, it's certainly uncommon in our day. Well, it's helpful to look to the past and to see that, no, this was actually a regular part of church life in ages past. I, I do remember reading, I can't remember where or who I was reading, but it had to do with the practice of early particular Baptists. And they had developed in one of these churches the practice of just regularly scheduling members' meetings uh, once, I think once a month, just to deal with matters of discipline within the church. We've adopted a similar practice. Uh, We are uh, calling for regular members' meetings once every three months, not necessarily to deal with discipline, but just to deal with other things as well, because there's always things that come up within the life of the church, but at least they're regularly scheduled uh, throughout the year. But I thought to myself, once a month to deal with matters of discipline within the church, that's how regular this was. Now, the church that I was reading about was a much larger church than ours. Um, lots of people attended. Uh, But you see that kind of opened my eyes, and I hope it opens yours too, that this in the history of the church was not an odd thing. It was a very normal thing. This is how Christians and pastors thought discipline is going to be a normal part of church life. I say here, see the H.E. Dana quote on page 158. So let me go to that now. This is... An observation made by this Greek scholar, H.E. Dana. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive. So discipline can be done poorly. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Discipline can be abused. And it is reprehensible and destructive to the church. 
but not more than the abandonment of discipline. I say amen. So the abuse of discipline is destructive to the church, but so too, and maybe even more so, is the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. So he's speaking of the past. He's writing in 1944. So he's speaking of uh, the way that discipline was handled in this uh, country um, in the 1800s. Um, He's noting that it wasn't always handled well, and therefore it brought the whole issue of discipline into disrepute. Christians started to not want to have anything to do with it and began to abandon it. Uh, Today, he says, though, The pendulum has swung in the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in church life. Again, this is H.E. Dana writing in 1944, a manual of ecclesiology is, is, is the name of the book that this is drawn from. So it's an interesting observation. And then here I have this quote from Dever. He is telling us that the history of discipline in churches is imperfect. And then he says, the scalpel is never wiser than the surgeon who wields it. I thought that's a wonderful way of putting it. What's his point? In the scriptures, we are called to do church discipline. It, it is, a, it is a, a, in this illustration, a kind of tool that is to be used within the church for the for the building up of the church, for the health of the church. But it must be wielded uh, with wisdom and with care and in love. And, and so, yes, just as a scalpel can be used for much good, so too a scalpel, carelessly used, can be, can be used to do much harm. And church discipline is, is that way as well. Uh, should, when, when, when a scalpel is misused, should we blame the scalpel and do away with the scalpel? No. We need a better surgeon you know, to handle the scalpel well so that it brings health to the patient. Um, but that is really what the church has done. Perhaps being motivated by the misuse and abuse of discipline, they've decided to throw out the tool, the scalpel. But the scalpel is not the problem. It is the one who wields it. So uh, we need to do discipline faithfully according to the scriptures. And if there is a problem with the way it is being done, that's what needs to change. We need to turn from the sin. We need to turn from the abusiveness and discipline and discipline in love and according to the scriptures. Jesus intends our lives to back up our words, Deborah says. If our lives don't back up our words, the evangelistic task is injured as we have witnessed in America. Undisciplined churches have actually made it harder for people to hear the good news of new life in Jesus Christ. I think he is right. Um, Think about how many non-Christians will look in on the church and say, it's filled with hypocrites. You know, and I, I, <laughs> the older I get, the more I'm thinking, they're, they're kind of right. In a lot of these churches, there's no discipline and there's a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, I, I would want to push back on that criticism and to say, Christians struggle with sin and that is not hypocrisy. If a Christian is struggling with sin and they're turning from it into Christ, that is not hypocrisy. That is really the Christian faith, the very... At the very core of the Christian faith is this acknowledgement that we are sinful, that we are in need of a Savior, that we are not good in and of ourselves apart from the grace of God. So there is no hypocrisy in struggling with sin and turning from it and to Christ again and again. But there is hypocrisy when a person claims to be a Christian 
but produces nothing but bad fruit. Um, that is a, a contradiction. And Christ warns us that such people um, are not saved if there is no real turning from sin into Christ, if there is no fruit of repentance. Um, they are perhaps wolves in sheep's clothing. And in that sense, the non-believer uh, has a valid criticism to make. The church is filled with hypocrites. And in churches that are not disciplined, it is probably especially true. Uh, these who are producing nothing but the fruit of um, sin in their lives, uh, they're allowed to, to remain in the church and they're allowed to go unchecked and to have a devastating impact upon the church and upon the witness of the church. What happened is the question that Dever raises Next, he says, why did we stop practicing church discipline? Wills, another author, suggests this commitment to a holy corporate witness to the world declined as other things gained the attention of the Christians late in the 19th century and earlier in the 20th century. So he is saying that other things captured the attention of Christians, of churches, of pastors, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I have here a remark. See the Wills quote on the bottom of page 59. Let me read it now and on to page 60. I thought it was a wonderful observation that he's making. I think he's right. Greg Wills, professor of church history at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, sheds light on a crucial change between the generations of our great-grandparents and our grandparents, the virtual disappearance of corrective discipline from churches. Will's book, Democratic Religion, offers a wealth of quotations reminding us that pastors of the early 1800s clearly considered their most important tasks to be faithful preaching the Word of God, faithfully preaching the Word, and faithfully administering godly discipline. So that's how pastors viewed their task in the early 1800s. They were to preach the Word of God faithfully, and they were to administer discipline faithfully. In fact, a great part of the historic Baptist commitment to religious liberty was motivated by a desire that churches be free to exercise church discipline without, in, without the interference of the state. That's a really interesting observation there. We could go on a whole tangent about the idea of religious liberty uh, that we have in, in, our, in our country. Um, Baptists had a lot to do with the development of that idea, you should know. The idea that there should be a separation of church and state, that churches should consist not of the citizens of, of, of the land, but of professing believers baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these churches ought to be holy unto the Lord, uh, distinct from the world. That, that whole idea that we hopefully are used to now, um, Baptists had a lot to do with um, bringing that idea to the forefront, this idea of the separation of church and state. I'm going to record a podcast episode with Jim Renahan this next week, in fact, on religious liberty and the influence that Baptists had in the development of that, um, that concept. Uh, so do look for that. I think it'll come out the Monday after, so not this Monday, but next. Uh, there's, a, there's an interesting observation here. Anyways, back to the point. Wills shows that in pre-Civil War days, Southern Baptists excommunicated nearly 2% of their membership every year. So statistically, that's how often Southern Baptists were involved in uh, church discipline. In incredibly, <clears throat> excuse me, incredible as it may seem, their churches grew 
In fact, their churches grew at twice the rate of the population growth, so the concern that a move to practice such biblical church discipline might be anti-evangelistic seems unfounded, to say the least. Uh, This example also shows us how imperfect church discipline is. Those same churches accepted in membership slaveholders in a way we would find scandalous today. And here we have that, um, that quote, the scalpel is never wiser than the surgeon uh, that wields it. Um, so Dever is noting some hypocrisy in the application of discipline in these days too uh, that we need to be mindful of. Okay, I think I read the wrong quote, um, the wrong Wills quote, but that was a good section too, wasn't it? <laughs> um, here's the Wills quote that I wanted to read. In fact, the more the churches concern themselves with social order, the less they exerted church discipline. So not only was there a problem of the misuse of discipline that led to people growing tired of it, also there was a distraction. The churches became focused on other things. The more the churches concerned themselves with social order, the less they exerted church discipline. From about 1850 to 1920, a period of expanding evangelical solicitude for the reformation of society, church discipline declined steadily. From temperance movements to Sabbatarian reform, evangelicals persuaded their communities to adopt the moral norms of the church for society at large. As Baptists learned to reform the larger society, they uh, they forgot how they had once reformed themselves. Church discipline presupposed a stark dichotomy between the norms of society and the kingdom of God. The more evangelicals purified the society, the less they felt urgency of a discipline that separated the church from the world. Do you understand what Wills is saying here? Um, He's saying that evangelicals stopped focusing on dealing with their own business, keeping their own house in order, and they became obsessed with trying to bring order to the world, uh, to the society outside uh, of the church. Are we to have an impact upon the societies in in which we live? I would say yes, maybe. Um, Sometimes we will, sometimes we won't. We're to be salt. Actually, I feel myself getting agitated right now about this issue because I'm very passionate about it. I think this is a major problem. Evangelicals from this day onward have obsessed with the transformation of culture. to the neglect, and here's the real problem, to the neglect of doing what the Bible calls us to do within the church. So the church goes undisciplined, and yet the church spends its time preaching and teaching and yelling at the world about all of the ills that exist within, within, the, within the society. You see how backwards this is? I, I believe it's a tremendous problem. I'm not opposed to... Um, being salt and light in the world and praying for our country and being saddened by the immorality that's all around us. But there's a part of me that wants to step back and say, that's the way it's always been. The the world is living in darkness. It's the church that's called to be light. But if the church that is called to be light becomes darkness, then what good will we be to the world? So the problem is not so much seeking to have an influence upon the world, the the problem really is neglecting to do what 
God has called us to do within the church, in my opinion. So, the gospel's watered down so as to appeal to the world. The sacraments are neglected or not faithfully or carefully administered. Are, are you tracking with me? There's no discipline in the church whatsoever. And the church does end up being filled with a lot of hypocrites. And we wonder why we have lost our influence on society. What's happened? Why has our society grown so corrupt? Why, ha- why are our churches not having an impact upon the world around us? Because you're not acting like the church. That's why. Um, there have been times in history where the church has had an impact upon society. There have also been times in history where the church has flourished and has had no impact upon society. We're not to really concern ourselves with that so much. What, what are we to concern ourselves with? Being faithful to do what God has called us to do as His people. Pastors should preach and teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Pastors need to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper faithfully. The baptismal and the Lord's table need to be properly fenced. And we need to do biblical church discipline. If we would do that, I trust that our churches would grow, not just in size, but in health. And we might actually have an impact upon the world around us again. Are you with me on this? It's a major problem, I think. Evangelicalism, um, for a long time, I think, has focused on the wrong things. Evangelicalism has focused on the wrong things. That's why I have a hard time even using that term and applying it to myself anymore. Evangelical. Are we? It depends on how you define the term, but I think it's such a broad movement that has lost its way. I, I have little desire to identify myself with that evangelicalism uh, that is around us today. Um, my goodness. Tangent? Yes? No? You like the tangents? You like the tangents. <clears throat> what, did, what did you just say, my wife? You, you kind of raised your eyebrows at me. Was that like a nod? You know where I'm going with this. Um, I was at a function yesterday not the night to remember, but earlier in the day. And there was a professing Christian that he found out I was a pastor, and boy, did I get to hear it. You know, um, he, he cared very little about any of my opinions, that's for sure. He wanted to let me know his. But he belongs to one of these evangelical churches, one of these, and I know I use this word a lot disparagingly, but I think rightly so, one of these classical dispensationalists, one of these who's obsessed with Bible prophecy. He just talked my ear off about Bible prophecy, about all the things that are going on in the world today, about Israel, etc., etc., etc. Didn't hear a word about Jesus. Didn't hear a word about the gospel. Didn't hear a word about life in a healthy church. Just this nonstop obsession with trying to read the signs to figure out what's going on in the world today and how we need to be politically active. I'm not opposed to political action, But I think the trouble is that it's just such an obsession with this sort of thing to the total neglect of Jesus, the gospel, and the health of Christ's church. And it wore me out. (laughs) That conversation did. There's a time and a place to like push back, right? And and this wasn't the time uh, nor the place to push back. But 
yes, there's just a major problem. We need to regain biblical Christianity is what we need to do. The Word of God needs to be faithfully taught. The sacraments faithfully administered. The church needs to be disciplined again. Um, We need to be willing to empty our churches so as to have healthy churches that actually bring honor to Christ instead instead of shame to His name. Say that? Stop wasting the food on the goats. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, I, you know, th- these things get me riled up. I appreciate Deborah's perspective. I think he's right. I think Will's is right here. Did I finish reading that quote? I don't even know. Let's see. Will's explains. Let me finish this. After the Civil War... Observers began to lament that church discipline was foundering. Uh, It was beginning to sink or wane. And it was. It declined partly because it became more burdensome in larger churches. Young Baptists refused increasing numbers to submit to discipline for dancing. I'm going to make a comment on that in just a moment. And the churches shrank from excluding them. Urban churches pressed by the need... Uh, for large buildings and the desire for refined music and preaching, subordinated church discipline to the task of keeping the church solvent. Many Baptists shared a new vision of the church, replacing the pursuit of purity with the quest for efficiency. They lost the resolve to purge their churches of strained members. No one publicly advocated the demise of discipline. No Baptist leader arose to call for an end to congregational censures. No theologians argued that discipline was unsound in principle or practice. It simply faded away as if Baptists had grown weary of holding one another accountable. It's a very interesting observation made by this Wills in his book, Democratic Religion. It's out on my desk right now, in fact. I've started to pick my way through it. It's, it's very interesting. But he just says, no one was standing up saying, no more discipline. It just, it just faded away. Um, as The church became obsessed with changing the culture instead of preserving its purity. Um, And as I think a lot of ministers grew more concerned with growing their churches large than being faithful to the things that God had called them to do. These are really interesting observations. I have four points here, and in one of the points I will um, make a little comment about the the idea that dancing uh, should be disciplined. So... Why did a discipline decline? Uh, the reformation of society became a primary concern. Two, uh, the failure to distinguish between church and society was also a problem. There's to be a distinction between the church and the world. Um, and you've been taught that over, over the past months especially. Number three, legalism will make it hard to do discipline uh, well. And I think the idea that dancing should be disciplined within the church is an example of, of legalism. If we allow legalism to creep into the church, um, it's going to destroy our ability to do discipline faithfully. What is legalism? It takes different forms. Um, legalism is when we take God's law and then we add to it. And that's primarily the thing that I'll focus on right now. If you take God's law, His moral law, and then you add things to it... Uh, That's going to be a major problem when it comes to discipline. Uh, Does God's law say, thou shalt not dance? I think not. And so, if you begin to discipline dancing, then 
you're really going to undermine your ability to do discipline well in the church. Um, uh, another example, I think, would be, does God's law say thou shalt not drink alcohol? Uh, no. Christ turned seven large jars of water to wine at a wedding feast. Christ himself did. He instituted the Lord's Supper with wine. Uh, what do the scriptures say regarding alcohol? Be not drunk with wine. Um, alcohol was used in the church in Corinth, so much so that some were getting drunk at church. Paul did not say, let's use grape juice instead, the Lord's Supper. He rebuked the church for their drunkenness and commanded that they exercise self-control. You, you understand what I'm saying? So think about the temperance movement that became an obsession of the church. Uh, think about that temperance movement. It, it's, it's all rooted in legalism, isn't it? For the scriptures do not say, do not ever drink alcohol. They say, do not be drunk with with wine. Are you following me here? Um, so if you begin to if you begin to allow legalism to creep in the church, it's going to hamper you from being able to do discipline. You're going to you're going to start focusing on things that you ought not, and you're going to do great danger or, or damage to the church. It's no wonder that young Baptists refuse to submit themselves to the public censures of the church regarding their dancing. I think they probably intuitively sense that this is. This is heavy-handed, authoritarian, and legalistic discipline that's being practiced here. And so it probably led to the demise of discipline within the churches. Um, should Christians be disciplined for drinking alcohol? Absolutely not. We partake of it every Sunday, and rightly so, in the Lord's Supper. Should Christians be disciplined for living a life of drunkenness? Yes, indeed. You see the difference, and uh, we have to get this just right. Legalism will destroy the ability to discipline the church according to God's word. And then four, as Baptist churches of the 19th century retreated from church discipline, the work of the pastor also changed. See another quote on the bottom of page 60 through 61. I'll see if I can get the right one. Now this time, another good quote. This one from Dever himself. As Baptist churches of the 19th century retreated from church discipline, the work of the pastor also changed. It had subtly, through uh, though certainly, became. Oh my goodness! It had subtly, though certainly, become more public. Previous people thought that the work of a pastor was to see that souls were mended by repeated private con uh, conferences with families or individuals. But what occurred more and more were protracted series of meetings and entertainments and impassioned calls to immediate decision with the pastor called upon occasionally to deal with only the most serious cases of church discipline. The church increasingly didn't become involved with such problems and in fact wasn't even aware of them. There was no longer a community that mutually covenanted together for accountability. Instead, the pastor alone was expected to deal with just a few cases, those that could cause the church the most public embarrassment. In all of these changes, important boundaries were blurred. The pastor's role was confused. Even more fundamentally, the distinction between the church and the world began to be lost. And this loss was of the great detriment of the church's evangelistic ministry into our own lives as Christians. Um, this is an interesting observation that Dever makes, isn't it? Uh, that... 
people's expectations of their pastors began to change in these days as well. I feel like it's one of the things that I have to constantly do is to, to kind of explain not only biblical ecclesiology and uh, the importance of discipline, but also I think I, I'm going to need to continually explain what the Bible says my job is as a pastor and what the job of the elders of the church are as, as elders uh, within the congregation. Because likely new people are going to be coming into this church with different notions, different expectations. Actually, one of the things we ask, one of the generic questions we ask in the membership process, um, there's a little questionnaire. What do you think the job of a pastor is? And people are, to just write you know, a brief little answer to that question. Why do you think we ask that question? Um, because we want to talk about that. We want to make sure that people have a biblical understanding of what the role of a pastor is. In so many of these churches, the pastor's job is to... To, to function as a kind of uh, chief, you know, op- chief executive officer within the corporation, you know, to run all of the programs and whatnot, so as to grow the ch- church large. Pastors need to pastor, according to the scriptures, as Devers' point. Okay, uh, we need to move on here. All evangelical Christians in the past tended to practice discipline, Devers says, and, and he here cites the Belgic Confession. Um, and here's just a little excerpt from the Belgic Confession written in 1561 um, and adopted by Reformed Christians. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all these things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereunto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. So the question that the Belgic Confession is addressing is, what is a true church? And you will notice that it lists the church being disciplined according to the word of God. Uh, this is a part of our Reformed and, and Protestant heritage, and we would do well to, to heed it. Um, in section Six of this chapter, Dever asks the question, or he raises the hypo- hypothetical objection, really. Our church would never do this, would we? And he says that sometimes church members are shocked at the idea of church discipline when they encounter it for the first time, and you hear them say something like, Our church would never do this, would we? In fact, that response shows how easy it is to forget what for centuries was common practice amongst Christians. And here in a section where Dever speaks about the commitment of the founding members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where he ministers, um, their commitment to practice church discipline, he asks, What matters were so serious that these founders felt biblically required to respond with such strong measures? And their statement is found on page 163. I'll leave it to you to read that because we are running out of time. But he basically is putting this before his members. These were originally sermons, by the way, and now they're put in book form. But he was opening the eyes of his, the members of his church to the things that would have been disciplined back when Capitol Hill Baptist Church was first founded. And um, yes, in most churches, all of this would be rather surprising. I think people have this idea that I attend church, I, I go to the service, and really, it's none of the pastor's business what I do in my private life. And it's none of the other members' business what I do in my private life. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And what I do in my private time is, is, is between me and the Lord. Uh, maybe it's between me and my wife. Uh, and no one else needs to be involved. I, I think that is the attitude that a lot of evangelicals have today who, who attend church. 
uh, evangelical churches. Um, uh, but clearly this was not the case from the past. It, number, letter B here. In a section where Dever speaks about the commitment... Oh, I, I just read that. Uh, and then also in letter C, Dever presents some cases from the church minutes. He actually cites um, from the church um, records of Capitol Hill Baptist Church to show how discipline is practiced. You could read that section on your own as well. So why practice church discipline? Five reasons are given. For the good of the person disciplined. Does that need any explanation? For the good of the person disciplined. It, it, it is for their good that discipline be done so that they might turn from sin and walk with Christ faithfully. For the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. That certainly happens when discipline is, is conducted publicly and even privately informatively. Other Christians are able to see, I need to walk carefully and to not be deceived by sin. Three, for the health of the church as a whole. Uh, sin within the church is like a a cancer within the church. If it goes unchecked, it will in, in, in time um, really devour the church. Four, for the corporate witness of the church. We've already talked about the problem of hypocrisy before the world. We're called to walk in a holy manner and to, to honor God before the world. And in this we will be light. In this we will be salt. So for the corporate witness of the church. And five, for the glory of God as we reflect His holiness. Ultimately, this is for the glory of God. Um, that whole section there from page 165 through 167 is worth reading, so please do that. Uh, we've covered some of these things before. B, from the beginning, Jesus had instructed His disciples to teach people to obey all that He had taught. That is a, par a part of the Great Commission. Don't forget it. Go, therefore, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? So, Preaching the gospel, people come to faith. Upon profession of faith, they're to be baptized. And then the Great Commission says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So there's to be this ongoing um, discipleship that is to take place within the church. And discipline is one of the means that God has given to the church to bring about sanctification in the lives of the believers. Um, greater holiness, greater obedience to Christ. Taking 1 Corinthians 5 as a model, churches have long recognized church discipline as one of the boundaries that makes church membership mean something. The assumption is that church members are people who can appropriately take communion without bringing disgrace on the church, condemnation on themselves, or dishonor to God and His people. The more you think about church discipline, and the more you read the Bible theologically, you'll, you'll, you'll realize that it all really does center right here. And I'm pointing for the sake of the recording at the Lord's table. It all centers here. Uh, when we apply baptism to people, the church is saying that this person has made a profession of faith. They're being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as the ordained minister administers baptism, the Lord is putting His name on that person. They are being marked off from the world as one of God's people through the waters of baptism. And the same thing really happens every Lord's Day as we come to the Lord's table, right? As we partake of the bread and drink of the cup, we together are being marked off from the world as God's people. Uh, so church discipline really does center on the question, should this one continue to be invited to the Lord's table or have they ruined their profession of faith by their 
unrepentant sin or because of their deviation from the truth of the gospel. This does happen. There are false professors within the church, and when people show that their profession of faith is false due to their living a life of unrepentant sin or due to their abandonment of the truth of the gospel, then the church can no longer um, give the Lord's Supper to that person. They are to be excommunicated. It's about communion. Uh, Paul says, do not even eat with such a one, referring to the one who is living in unrepentant sin. We are not to eat with the one who is living in unrepentant sin. And it's a reference not to common meal, but to the Lord's table. For by the Lord's Supper, the church of Christ is marked off from from the world. We have to read the scriptures theologically, brothers and sisters, and not proof text always. Um, We have to connect the dots, put all of the things together. Uh, And Devere is right, I think, to say that this is really about uh, the question whether or not the church can continue uh, to vouch for someone's profession of faith. And here I do make a little remark, um, a reference to this book, Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. I'll go over it with you uh, more, in a more detailed fashion next week, Lord willing. But Jonathan Lehman views discipline through the lens of the gospel and asks the basic question, can the church continue to affirm this person's profession of faith? Do Christians struggle with sin? Yes, we all do. What will a Christian do when they fall into sin? Even, even heinous sin. What will a Christian do when they fall into sin? Repent. They'll turn. They'll repent before God. They'll make amends with others that they've hurt. They'll they'll desire to come back into the fellowship and to partake of the Lord's Supper, right? That's what a Christian will do. What will one whose faith a profession of faith is false do? They will not repent. They, they will not turn from their sin. They will continue in it and they'll run away from Christ and his church. Um, so, this book here that we'll go over in, in, in brief next week is, is so important. Uh, we really need to view all of this through the lens of the gospel and through asking the question, can the church continue to affirm this person's profession of faith? What if we don't uh, practice discipline? What, what if we don't practice discipline? Ultimately, this is a question about the nature of our churches, Deborah says. So, what have I done with you over the past few months We had a whole sermon series on the church as temple. And in that series, the main question being asked was this, what is the church? What is the church's nature? And you can answer that question in different ways, but it's helpful to use the terminology of temple because when you realize that the church is the temple of God, that it is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that we are living stones in it, built upon the foundation of Christ, the apostles and prophets, uh, built upon this foundation, built up for the purpose of giving glory to God, worshiping God, living holy lives for Him. You see, th- that, that whole concept answers the question, what is the church? What is its nature? And if that is the nature of the church, then it should be clear to us that the church is to be distinct from the world. The church is to be sanctified and set apart unto God. The church is to be holy, etc., etc. Ultimately, this is a question about the nature of our churches. To many Christians in the past, a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church. This is Dever quoting Greg Wills. When church discipline leaves the church, 
Christ goes with it, says John Dagg. I think he's right. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Think about that. I think there are some churches that practice discipline poorly. It's really not what we're addressing here. They need to do better, of course, and we need to do better ourselves, so we need to be faithful. But here, I think Dag is referring to those churches where there just is no discipline at all. There's a gathering together of people. They partake in a service. There's, there's no discipline whatsoever taking place with that congregation. Uh, according to the Belgic Confession, those those gatherings of people, those congregations, don't even bear the marks of a true church. That's what Dag is getting at. And then Dever concludes his chapter by saying that this is about love, ultimately. And it is. This is about love for God. This is about love for Christ. This is about love for Christ's church. This is about love for the people of God. This is why we are concerned to be faithful to do what God has called us to do. If we want our churches healthy, Dever says, we must actively care for each other even to the point of confronting. All must be done in love, uh, brothers and sisters, and I want to conclude with that. Um, even when confrontation must be had, it must be done in love, with gentleness, and with the objective, uh, objective being to restore uh, those who have fallen into sin. And that is another thing that this little book gets so well, Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman. He does emphasize the need for, for love, for gentleness, for patience, for all of those things, lest we wield the scalpel of church discipline in a way that is harmful and not helpful ultimately. May the Lord help us in these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I do pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word. Paul says to us that if we have not love, we are nothing. We're like a, a, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, and, and indeed that needs to be remembered as we talk about this topic of church discipline, O oh Lord. Make us faithful to do discipline according to the scriptures, but give us love. May we have a sincere love for you, O God, for Christ and for one another. Uh, may we long to see each other walk with Christ faithfully. May we patiently exhort one another in the formative way that we have talked about. Uh, Lord, uh, do give us the courage also to do what you have called us to do as we are surrounded by a world and even a professing church that does not agree with these things. Help us to be faithful for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.